Yep. All yours. Rock and roll. Thank you. So uh, you guys, can everybody, first of all, can everybody hear me? Okay. Volume's good. Yep. Rock and roll. Okay. So thank you, Mahmoud, for, for inviting me uh, to come and talk to everybody today. And thank you, everybody, for coming uh, to listen. Uh, as we were kind of joking a little bit earlier, this is my first lecture-style presentation in quite a long time, actually. And it's something I'm, I'm, I'm pretty familiar in, in doing. Um, I'll, I'll say a little bit about myself in just a second. Um, but thank you for coming to the talk today, which is titled uh, The Nature of Sports morality, and virtue. So who am I? I am Jordan Goldstein. I guess technically I'm Dr. Jordan Goldstein. I have a PhD in kinesiology. And I'm probably the world's worst kinesiologist because I can't even tell you 95% of the names of the muscles on the body or the bones or what connects to what or what does what, okay? So I'm a very bad kinesiologist and that's because I'm a, by trade, I'm a historian, all right? Uh, when I was in the, uh, my undergrad and doing my master's, I was in history and I was always extremely interested in the convergence between identity, collective identity, like national identity and sport. Like, so I come from Canada, so the stereotypes are true. It's like, why, why do Canadians love hockey? Why do Brazilians love soccer? Why do New Zealanders love rugby, et cetera, et cetera? Like, what are the connections between cultures and particular sports that become grafted onto their identity? Um, but in the academy, historians don't take sports seriously. And so I had to move into kinesiology to find uh, a very small niche field, which is uh, the sport history field. And so I got my PhD in 2016. I recently turned my dissertation last year uh, into my first full published manuscript, which is titled uh, Canada's Holy Grail. And it's my exploration into the donation of the Stanley Cup, which is um, was Canada's national ice hockey trophy. And if we have any ice hockey fans or fans of the NHL, that's the big Holy Grail that they hand out at the end of the year, um, the greatest trophy in, in the, you know, the world. Uh, in the world of sports, in, in, in my opinion. Um, and so for seven years, I was a teacher in kinesiology. I was a university prof in kinesiology, teaching sport history, sport philosophy, and sports sociology. And I, I, I fell in love with philosophy, and in particular, sport philosophy. And it merged really nicely with my historical perspective. I would call myself more like a philosopher of history, somebody who crafts narratives uh, rather than somebody who goes and digs things out. Um, so philosophy has always been something that's very uh, interesting and intriguing to me. And through teaching philosophy and history at the same time, I was able to come up with what I believe to be a unique philosophy of sport or a, a unique philosophy of movement, which is tied to his, the historical evolution of individualism, individualism, and the progression of liberty in societies. And I wrote about that in an ebook that I published in 2020 called The Athletic Hero. Um, it's on my Gumroad. Uh, I should have linked it. It's free. It's a free download. Um, and a lot of the things that I'm going to talk about today. We'll link them eventually. Don't worry. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. A lot of the things I'm going to talk about today um, are, are, are talked about in much greater specificity and detail in the book. All right, so, so that's definitely a great place to go. Um, 
so that's kind of like my my academic background. But uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you know that's not what I do anymore. Uh, I quit the university in August. Um, I now have my own coaching and consulting business where I use my philosophy of sport that I've created um, to coach athletes, uh, coach coaches of athletes, um, and also I hire individual um, um, clients um, who are just looking to reach another level in their life. And, and I can use the metaphors and the language of sport to help them get there. Uh, and, and we activate that through the body, um, which is sort of like my philosophy applied. Um, and it's basically me resuscitating and reviving what I believe to be ancient wisdom and ancient truth around sports, uh, but applied for a modern context. Um, and I've come to this through living it. Um, I used to be somebody who was heavily involved in sports growing up, but then I moved away from them, especially in my early adulthood when I was going through my studies. Um, and I've recently over the past eight years gotten back into consistent physical activity. Uh, and the thing that I do more often than not is trail running. Um, and you can see that's a beautiful picture of me with a frozen ice beard after I went for a, I think a 10 mile trail run in negative 20 degrees Celsius weather in January. One of the, one of the best trail runs I've ever been on in terms of the beauty of the environment, um, the challenge and just the love of doing something hard. And essentially like when I think of sport philosophy, that's what I think of, but sport philosophy isn't something that most people a ever hear about B think exists or C why do we even have this thing? So I'll be a good Socrates and we'll start off our discussion with a question, of course. And I'll just throw it out there. I have a particular understanding of sport philosophy, but I'm interested to know what people out there think. Like, how should we think about sport philosophy? When I say sport philosophy, what pops into your mind initially? Uh, anybody want to share? I'd love to open up, open up the floor. Well, for me, yeah, yeah. Well, for me, there's a connection between body and mind. So usually we speak like there are two separate things, but at the end we are a whole, and and, and it's connected. What we do with the body, it influences our mind. So I, I don't know. <laughs> that's what comes to mind. Perfect. So body and mind combined. Absolutely. Excellent point, uh, JC. Thank you. Yeah, John, please. I know this is kind of right up your wheelhouse too. <laughs> so what are you thinking? Oh, was that John who had his hand up? Uh, yeah. I don't know if that was by mistake or not. But in the meantime, okay. uh, Adam was saying uh, the first thing that comes to mind is play. Mmm, love that. <laughs> Somebody might actually have a bit of a, of a foreknowledge into where sport philosophy kind of comes from. That's pretty, that's pretty, that's pretty neat. So we've got play, we've got mind and body. Anyone else? Anything else? Anything else coming to, coming to anybody? Oh, no problem. Else. Yeah, whenever you, yeah. Any, anyone yeah. else? If, uh... Uh, far from competition. <laughs> Competition. Okay. competition. I've got no, Adam put far, down in there. Far from, far from far, competition. Far from <laughs> not, competition. Not the competitive sports. Okay. 
So competition is something kind of outside is a, is a different, is a yeah. different sphere. Okay. Uh, Adam is also saying uh, interaction. Yep. And learning. learning. Okay. Love these ideas. Love these words. One of the things that I find um, strikingly absent about this is how do we engage in sport or how do we engage in physical activity, right? It's something that is done through the body and it's exerted through motion or movement. So when I say sport philosophy, the way, uh, the way I think about it is motion, movement. And maybe it's a, a hang up on the word sport, right? We, we tend to think of sport as one particular thing. When, uh, when I say sport, I mean, broadly speaking, physical exertion or physical activity. Yeah, that's, that's, I, and sorry to interrupt here, but, but this is, this is actually interesting. Like for maybe a, the question would be, what do you think? Like, or when we say sports, what comes to your mind? Yeah, that's a good way to think about Every, it. Everyone, I, I don't know, because the other day we were discussing whether, for example, dance could be considered sports, for example. Mm -hmm. is, it, is dancing sports? I don't know. So, yeah. I, I guess it depends on your definition of sport. And I didn't necessarily want to go down the, um, the metaphysical route in terms of exploring sport, um, because I don't, well, while I think that's an important component to it, I don't think that's how we actually live a good life through understanding through understanding sport. Um, and that's kind of where my philosophy is geared. It's geared towards action and it's geared towards implementation. And we can argue about definitions and that's great uh, because we do need to have a clear sense of what it is we are talking about in the world. But I think one of the problems with philosophy and, and it breaking out and being as powerful as it could be is we just limit it to the discussion part and we never, make the bridge to how do we live this in the real world? How do we incorporate this into our lives so that we lead a better life? To me, that should be the object of philosophy. That should be the end of philosophy. And so while it would be really cool to go back and forth about is dance a sport, is gymnastics a sport, are darts a sport, um, right? Is chess a sport? Um, I think that kind of sidetracks us from how we incorporate the ideas of sport or exertion or motion into our lives in a way that allows us to live the good life. So that's kind of what I would say about that. But when I when I'm saying sport, I'm not talking about a very a limited definition of sport. I'm talking about a broad incorporation. So it's competitive. It's not competitive. It's organized. It's unorganized. It's the Super Bowl or UEFA Champions League final, and it's pickup with your friends that you just do at the park, right? It's all that and everything in between. It's me going out for a run right after this talk, which is exactly what I'm going to do. I'd show you my shorts if, if, if you wanted, but I don't need to do that, okay? So when I'm thinking about sport philosophy, I'm thinking about movement, I'm thinking about application, and I'm thinking about the good life. So then instead of a sport, Instead of sport philosophy, then let's broaden this out. We'll go to the next question, because of course, we answer questions with more questions. Beautiful philosophy. Okay, so 
if I'm trying to gear us towards this idea of motion or movement or application or implementation, what does a philosophy of movement look like? Or when I just say philosophy of movement, now what pops into your mind as opposed to sport philosophy? Or is, or is there even a difference? So same question, I'll open uh, with different question, but I'll open that up uh, for, for responses as well. What does a philosophy of movement look like? Can you hear me now, Mahmoud? Yep. Loud and clear, John. Sorry, John. I, I, I'm on my wife's phone. Long story, but I just—it's kind of linked to my, my, what I was going to say for the first question. I like—I'm interested in your use of the word "of." So, I, a route I've gone down lately is philosophy for sport, and I suppose mm. it would be the same for movement as well. So philosophy for movement rather than "of." Yep. Um, so I don't, I don't know if it's an answer to your question. It's maybe more of a question around it. I, th I think we see a lot of philosophy of stuff, but I'm really interested in how can we use philosophy for, and obviously in your case, sport and movement. Yeah, no, I think that's probably a distinction that I should be making in my own description here, because that's, I think a good, that's a really good um, way to frame the distinction that I was talking about earlier between sort of like, philosophy in the ether versus applied philosophy, a philosophy of versus a philosophy for. Uh, and so I would actually edit this in real time um, to, to reflect that change. Cause I, I really, I really like that. Um, what does a philosophy for movement look like? Yeah. That wasn't a lot. criticism at all, by the way, that was just me kind of thinking. Oh, oh no. As you were talking. No, it's a refine. It's a refinement. I appreciate. I appreciate it. I, I think it's clearer that I think it's clearer that way. What I'm what I'm trying to drive towards, and it makes it makes what I would be what I'm going to be presenting um, a, lo a lot more clear. So, so I, re I really appreciate that clarification. Thank you. Um, yeah, Adam says good movement versus bad movement. Okay, I like that. I like that distinction between good versus bad. Any other thoughts on what a philosophy for movement could look like or should look like? It's a little tricky. Okay, I like this. I like silence because this gives me a chance to come in and fill it. Um, and what I'm gonna be presenting is my own perspective, again, based on my historical understanding and my, 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 my gleaning of philosophy. Um, so all of these are kind of my, my personal thoughts that I've gained through teaching and through experiencing and through researching. So when we're starting to talk about a philosophy of movement or a philosophy for movement, what we're truly talking about is a philosophy of experience as opposed to a philosophy of knowledge. And in philosophy, we have a school of thought that puts us right in there. And what's funny is that this is one of the most confusing schools of philosophy, I think, if you read the people who promote it. Um, I'm talking about phenomenology. Um, and the, the, the chief phenomenologist, the person who's kind of associated with this is Edmund Hugh Searle. And you try to read his writings on phenomenology and I don't even know. It's, it's impenetrable stuff, but it's one of the easiest philosophies, I think, for, for people outside of philosophy to grasp. 
you know, when we talk about philosophy, people think metaphysics, they think about the definitions, the, 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 the perfect form, right? Like the, what is truth? What is justice? What is beauty? Or, you know, the cynical, like, what is a chair? What is a table? Like, that's what people gravitate towards when they think about uh, philosophy. What is, what is the world made of? How does the world operate? Okay, these are great. But phenomenology just asks a, a completely different question. Instead of what is the world made of, it's how is the world experienced? Or how do we experience the world? And that's really all phenomenology is. It's that's the first principle. That's the line of investigation we want to go down. And this creates a plethora of differences and distinctions between sort of a metaphysical understanding of sport, where we're all trying to, you know, through the Socratic dialogue, figure out like um, scale, category, necessary, sufficient, all those things, right? Um, but we don't need that. We don't need that in a philosophy of, or philosophy for movement, if we're focusing on the experience. What does it feel like to move? What, do, what occurs when we move? How are we transformed? How do we change or what stays the same to the favorite uh, questions of historians? Um, and one of the things in phenomenology that is really important to understand is that it's not just like the big grand experiences, you know, the moments of our lives that, that are punctuated by memories, right? It's the mundane. It's the literal everyday stuff that happens to us can be incorporated into our understanding. One of the thing, one of the ways I like to describe this is the importance of weather or the importance of the climate or, or the environment on your mood, right? A walk to work, a walk to the park is drastically different if the sun is shining versus if it's raining. You experience both differently, right? And they're both relatively ordinary things but they can have an outsized importance on your day. I don't need to tell you how happy people get when they see the sun breaking through the clouds. You know, everybody is out, everybody is smiling. You know, um, where I live, 10 degrees Celsius in November feels a lot different than 10 degrees Celsius or in October, it feels a lot different than 10 degrees in March, even though it's the same temperature. And these are sort of mundane things, but they have outside, out, out, um, outsized importance on the way we feel and the way we actually live our lives. So there's no such thing as kind of like a mundane activity. And when we're talking about sport, that's like going for a walk with your family can have just as much of an impact as training for an ultra marathon on the very far end of the scale, right? And the, um, the sport philosophers that I kind of follow, they are the ones who are preaching this idea of an experience. And this is one of my favorite quotes uh, from really any sport academic. Um, and it's by Jan Rintala. And this gets to, and I think it was JC that talked about this, this idea of mind body is one. Um, we are our bodies. We do not live within them. All right. We are our bodies. We do not live within them. So what happens to our bodies happens to us. We are, we are our bodies. The experiences that we have in our bodies are the experiences that shape who we are and dictate how we're gonna act in the world. And this moves us to the next sort of philosophical concept that we can now talk about. Yes, 
Absolutely, John. Sports gone too far towards the mind and the psychology, the body. Yes. And there's always this, there's always this push and pull between the body on top or the mind on top. And that's because we live in a universe in a world, we live in a society that has disassociated body and mind, right? We live in a do we live with the dualist conception. And there's a historical kind of um, reason for this. Um, but the opposite is what I think we should be focusing on, which is embodiment which is a union of biological, psychological, and physical elements of a person. We are our bodies. We do not live within them. This is the exact opposite of the way in which we tend to look at the body and the mind today. The body is separated from the mind. And this is as a result of this guy on the right, Rene Descartes, um, who gave us a kind of like a philosophy of medicine that was rooted in science. Right. In order to heal the body, we have to study the body objectively. And in order to do that, you must separate out the mind. The mind is the subject. The body is the object. And this was really great because it, it allowed us to figure out ways to cure the body in terms of illness, disease, prevention. This is uh, a lot of the philosophy. This, this philosophy of Rene Descartes is what has led to incredible advancements of medical uh, in medical science right? Which is good, but there's a problem. There's a problem in terms of the individual person, right? And it's very, I think, I think putting us in a doctor's office is actually a really good way to understand this, right? Because when the body is object, the person in front of you, the doctor is looking at charts. He's looking at statistics. He's looking at measurements, but you, the subject, you have feelings, you have experiences, you have sensations. We've probably all been in a doctor's office where you're describing something. Look, oh, I'm feeling sick. Like I've got a, I'm coughing up. Like, like my leg is sore or whatever it is. You're explaining to the doctor how you're feeling. The doctor's not even looking at you. He's looking at the charge. He says, yeah, you may say that, but based on the tests I just ran, nothing's wrong with you. So get out of my sight. Do you feel any better because the, the measurements haven't necessarily corroborated with your experience? No, you're like, this guy doesn't feel my pain. This guy doesn't care about how I feel about it. So what we've done when we objectify the body is we end up objectifying the person because we are our bodies. We do not live inside of them. So a philosophy of motion a philosophy for movement doesn't necessarily care about objective. We're interested in the subjective. Okay. So that's the first thing that we need to really get, get an, into our minds is that it doesn't matter the black and white. We're living in this, this world of gray when we're talking about a philosophy for movement. And I think that's actually a great place for philosophy as well, because it puts us into a different zone of philosophy. And it was Adam who talked about good movement versus bad movement. Well, okay. We have a philosophy around our morals. We have a philosophy around our ethics. We have a philosophy around what's a good thing in the world and what's a bad thing in the world. And this is where a philosophy for movement should be aimed. We wanna use motion and movement to bring about goodness both in the world but also for ourselves. Now, there are kind of three ways we could go about this. 
in terms of the traditional ways to understand morality and ethics through philosophy. We could be deontologists. What are we obliged to do? We could be consequentialists. What are the results of our actions? Or we could be in the realm of virtue ethics. What type of person are we? Deontology is nice. Consequentialism is practical. But are either of those related to a subjective understanding of motion? Deontology presents us with an objective list of rules that we must follow. Consequentialism looks at the outcome and sort of disregards all the steps that gets there. Neither of these seem appropriate if we are to think about the subjective elements of motion and incorporating that into, the, into a philosophy of the good life. So that kind of puts us into this realm of virtue ethics. What type of person are we? Who are we becoming? How do we act in the world consistently? What do people know us by? Very much so. The buzzword of the age is well-being, largely for neuroimaging. Exactly, body. I believe. I believe, in terms of like body, mind, and spirit, a philosophy of motion doesn't put the body above any of those elements. But what it does is it centers action through the body first, because through our bodies we then experience, and through our experiences we gain characteristics of virtue, and then we can embody and act those out in other areas of our life. That's essentially what I mean by, <laughs> that's essentially what I mean by a philosophy for movement. And I don't know if you're trolling me or not when you say I sound like Plato. No, I'm There's not, a little but, bit of, uh, okay. because uh, see, this is the thing and, and without getting into the details, but uh, many people assume that Plato is always all about just definitions and mind and spirit and stuff like that. But for Plato, like the, the of course they're both intertwined, but then the most essential thing first is having a healthy fit you know athletic body yeah because without that according to plato you will never be able to actually uh become yes. a good slash you know virtuous whatever yes 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 um, etc uh, what's it called? Um, Definitely much more impressive beard. Definitely. Yes, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. <laughs> so you're talking about like the, you're talking about the idea of like Callas Caligoria, Callas Caligoria. I'm sorry, I'm mispronouncing that. Um, something like that. It, 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 it borderline, the not loose people around. It's just, you know, like the, the, the first and foremost is the focus on, on the body, like without yes. a proper kind of healthy fit, uh, properly exercised body, you will never get uh, a uh, healthy yes. brackets mind. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And and I I completely agree with Plato on that. Um. And and Plato would argue that we we can use the body body to harness the instincts and to to advance the rational faculty of our mind. Uh, I'll let's sidetrack. It. Why not? Um. So Plato, when we're talking about like the spirit or the soul. Plato has a, a, a three-part understanding, 
and he uses an analogy of a two-horse chariot. So there's two horses pulling one, one chariot, right? The instinct, which is just like our natural base urges, is this big, big, strong horse, right? That just pulls us around. Then we've got like our rational brain, right? And that's the, the small horse next to him. It just, it, it's, it can pull, but it's easily overpowered by the stronger horse. And then we have the charioter. And that's kind of like, uh, I'm, lo I'm losing it a little bit here. Um, but that's, that's essentially what you do through, through um, athletics is you train the charioteer and the small horse to work in tandem to suppress and crush the natural, in the natural instinct and to steer it in a more rational space. Um, so that's kind of like a little, a little bit into Plato. I for, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I spaced on, on one, of the, uh, one of the spots. Um, but it's funny that you say that right now because check who's, out, check who's on the next slide. Yeah, it's definitely not Plato. <laughs> and one of the reasons is, yeah, one of the reasons it's not Plato is Plato doesn't believe in mind-body unity. Plato believes in, dis, in a disembodied conception where the mind is above the body, where the body must be harnessed and punished and beaten down so that it can, so that the rational mind can live and the rational mind can essentially point us towards virtue and truth. It's, he's, he's close. Plato is close, but he's not realistic. Okay. Plato's not realistic because the instincts are a part of our nature and try hard as you will to suppress them. They ain't going away, no matter how hard you think. We all know this. We all know about like the ascetics or the, the stoics, right? The people who try to, not necessarily the stoics, but the people who like will shun emotion or shun feeling. And then, you know, after 10 years, they just blow up and they go on a massive spree, right? Because you cannot suppress what is naturally inside of you. The best you can do is guide it. And Plato, while he was on, he was right over the mark. He missed that final crucial link. And that's where his student, Aristotle, came in and I believe gave us the solid, the more solid foundations for a practical philosophy of motion, as opposed to more of a theoretical philosophy of motion. Um, and he does this by, again, focusing on the subjective as opposed to the objective. And that's another distinction between these two when thinking about mor morality. And as I'm kind of suggesting to everybody, morality is the realm of philosophy where motion should be discussed. There's a couple of interesting theory um, ideas from Aristotle, which, which point us in this direction. Ontelechi and Eudaimonia. Ontelechi is the internal drive that orients us towards our highest values or virtues. It's the passion that's inside of you. And one of the reasons this is linked to the, to the subjective is because it's different for each of us, right? You know, the objective is like ice cream is a dessert that's made from milk and churned and frozen. It's usually sweet and got a lot of sugar. Great. Mahmoud, what's your favorite kind of ice cream? Do you have one? Do you have a favorite flavor? Just for the sake of the discussion, let's say it's uh, salted caramel. Let's say that salted caramel, but that's wrong because I know that's not the best flavor. The best flavor is the one that I like the most. 
It's the difference between the objective and the subjective, right? So we each have different passions. We each have different talents. We each have different skills. We each have different interests. We should allow that kind of voice within ourselves to guide us because that's sort of like pointing us towards our purpose or our direction in life, right? We are being pulled. We are interested in these things because we have something potentially to give that other people don't, right? And eudaimonia, that's the highest good attainable for any individual, which Aristotle suggests is reason, same like Plato. Um, but eudaimonia allows us to have an individual understanding of what that good is to each of us, as opposed to Plato's conception, which is kind of like, well, it's objectively reason, dummy, come on, right? So Aristotle gives us a place for the subjective. And it's a place for, uh, and, and essentially, what athletics does is it gives us this arena or a means to ingrain within ourselves the greatest virtues, the greatest characteristics that we should be striving for, that highest value, that highest good. And for the ancient Greeks, that was arete. Arete is a very difficult concept to translate. But essentially, it's this, the most excellent virtue. So athletics, sport, motion, movement exists so that we can cultivate within us the greatest individual virtues that are possible. And the way they described this most excellent virtue, body and mind combined to aim at moral excellence. I have a quote from the Odyssey, a good historian. And I think this gets to the idea of arete being kind of like the mark of yourself or the most important features of yourself. Um, this is a part of the Odyssey where Odysseus, he's in the ninth year. He washes aboard uh, this island. Uh, he's treated as, a, as an honored guest. They go out, they perform athletic competitions. They offer him to participate. He says, basically, no, I'm old and tired. Please, I don't want to compete. Somebody stands up in the crowd and basically calls him a wuss, like you're a sissy, like you have no courage, you're not an athlete, you're basically just like a, 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 a he calls him like a master peddler sailor who sails from port to port thinking nothing of cargoes, right? So all you care about is money, all you care about is the external crap in the world, and you're definitely not even close to an athlete, to which Odysseus jumps up, hurls a discus, twice as far as any of these Phaeacians have done, and then challenges every single person to whatever contest they want. And this is the quote that comes right after that. What you have said to us is not unwelcome, for it is, uh, for it is natural that you should want to show your arete, since you were angered by that man standing up in the gathering and sneering at you as if at your arete, although no man in his right senses would do so. So the things that sports allow us to showcase are the most important elements of our character. That's what the ancient Greeks believed. And it was written about and it was celebrated that this was the essence of the athlete. This was the essence of exerted motion or intentional motion was to train you in all of the best virtues that you could acquire and to do it in a very obvious way that involves toil, struggle, sacrifice, discipline, and hard work. Pindar was the most famous of all the ancient Greek poets. He wrote in the, during the golden age of classical Greece during the fifth century, the 400s, 
uh, BCE. And he wrote a particular poem that was solely meant to praise the athletes. And this is what he often talked about, the toil, the struggle, that athletics essentially gives us an honorable struggle of self, against self, against an opponent, but really to bring out the best within each individual. Here's a nice excerpt from uh, his Ode to Theron of Akragas, which I think is really neat and touches upon kind of the, the importance of competition, although I'm not really going to dive too, too much into that. Um, winning releases from anxieties one who engages in competition. Truly, wealth embellished with virtues provides fit occasion for various achievements. By supporting a profound and questing ambition, it is a conspicuous lodestar, the truest light for man. So athletics orients us to an honorable struggle with ourselves, which allows us to gain virtue and characteristics which are universally admired in our society. And they're universally admired because when we act on them, we bring about the good in the world. But none of that makes any sense without that important part about struggle and toil. That's why it's a philosophy for motion. Going back into the objective, sprinting teaches you something that only sprinting can teach you, that it hurts to sprint, that your lungs burn when you're finished. Going on a long run or lifting a heavy weight is going to teach you something about your body, that it hurts to do these things. You feel this stuff viscerally in your bodies in a way that other activities are not able to impart. Um, our bodies are incredible for giving us sensations and experiences. And sports are one of the most real experiences and sensations we can subject our body to because it forces us to feel pain. And it forces us to feel pain when we don't have to, right? We willingly go out and feel pain. And that's a very important part of this is the willingness to struggle, the willingness to endure and the willingness to sacrifice in order to achieve. The morality of sports comes to us from Greek mythology. And it's best represented through the persona of Heracles or Hercules. Because his story is truly the story of the moral transcendence of the individual through struggle. But what's also intriguing, historically speaking, is that Heracles is the patron saint of the ancient Greek gymnasia. So he's actually kind of like a deity of sports. <laughs> and so this is really intriguing connection, right? Uh, it, it, it talks to us a little bit about like the hero's journey and that kind of idea. And actually the word hero is kind of etymologically related to, to Heracles. It's, it's pretty, pretty neat. Um, but essentially... Yeah, not only did they ro roam around naked, but all the Greeks competed against each other naked. Should we just should we aside on the naked statues for a second? There's a funny there's a funny little piece of information about the naked statues. Does anybody know why the naked statues, the um, the, the 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 packages of all the athletes are the smallest possible? Does anybody does anybody ever notice that? Anybody know why? Uh, this is. Probably, I don't know if it's wrong, but I remember. I heard it. Oh, yeah. Those who want to jump in, yeah, go, go ahead. 
Uh, I heard it was because I heard it was because big penises are unattractive back then. <laughs> Fair people. enough. It's funny. Be, oh, interesting. You know, the the epitome of beauty, the thing that the ancient Greeks thought was the most beautiful thing in the world was the naked athletic male body. Right. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting. But that's, that's actually not the reason. The reason why they're so small is because it shows immense restraint because the ancient Greek world is a kind of a homoerotic world. You know, like that stuff is above board. So if you're competing naked against another man and you show arousal, well, that shows that you can't suppress or harness your instincts, that you're not in control of your body. Kind of funny. <laughs> it, it kind of goes with this idea of control, though, and harnessing in terms of what Plato was talking about. So it's actually not that bad of an aside <laughs> to talk about. Pardon me. Going back to Hercules, um, the story of Hercules is, is transcendent because it's his choice, right? He's born to a mortal, but Zeus is his father, and he kind of has this birthright stolen from him uh, by, by the goddess Hera. So in order to reach his potential or his birthright, he's got to go through what are known as the 12 labors. And right as he's coming to adulthood, there's a parable, there's a story about his choice. He's visited by two nymphs. One represents vice, one represents uh, virtue, okay? And I'm just going to, let's just go into the quotes. So vice tempts him. I see that you are hesitating, Hercules, uh, by what path you shall enter upon life. If then you make a friend of me, I will conduct you by the most delightful and easy road, and you shall taste of every species of pleasure and pass through life without experiencing difficulties. That sounds like a pretty sweet ride, huh? Nice and comfortable life. You get all the pleasures in the world. Oh, it's beautiful. It's glorious. But we all know that's not the right road that Hercules should take right? We don't want the easy road in life. And certainly Hercules doesn't take the, the easy road. So virtue pops up. And this is what she's got to say. Because I know your parents and have observed your disposition in the training of your childhood, from which I entertain hopes that if you direct your steps along the path that leads to my dwelling, you will become an excellent performer of whatever is honorable and noble, and that I shall appear more honorable and distinguished in goodness. I will not deceive you, however, this is, the, this is the kicker, with promises of pleasure, but will set before you things as they really are. And as the gods have appointed them for what is valuable and excellent, the gods grant nothing to mankind without labor and care. So the choice is clear, struggle, reach your potential and the highest value you can attain or choose a life of comfort and sink away into mediocrity and essentially wasted potential. Ouch, hurts. So he chooses the life of struggle. Yeah, comfort is better than struggle. Preach it. Uh, chooses the life of struggle to reach his destiny. He, he goes on the, the, ten, the 10 labors. It's really 12. And then when he's finished, he becomes the only Greek here. Oh, I know. I'm sorry. Vice makes good arguments. The problem is it doesn't lead to anywhere good. I'm so a couch Hercules. potato. I'm going to be watching the World Cup on my new couch. And that's it. That's it. Lazy. Yes. Lazy. Something like that. Um, what's neat about Hercules is the only divine. He's the only hero in Greek mythology to um, transcend. So he actually gets to sit amongst the Olympian gods. And it's through this idea of 
sacrifice and struggle that he's earned that um, apotheosis, which is the transition from mortal to divine. And one of the cool things about the mythology and the legend of Hercules is that he founded the ancient Olympics before he left. So he left us with competitive athletics as a way to follow his example and to essentially embrace struggle, toil, and sacrifice. And we were talking about the ancient gymnasium, right? So here we go. The good life through athletics. The good life through athletics is one that trains body and mind in harmony through a willingness to struggle and suffer to earn what is ours. And that's what the ancient Greeks were doing in terms of a philosophy for movement. It was a place to exercise balance between mind and body. Mahmoud, here's a Plato quote for you, talking about um, training the mind and the body. What I should say, therefore, is that these two branches of education seem to have been given by some god to men to train these two parts of us, the one to train our philosophic part, the other to train our energy and initiative. They are not intended, the one to train the body, the other mind, except incidentally, but to ensure a proper harmony between energy and initiative on the one hand and reason on the other by tuning each to the right pitch. So that's kind of the idea of like training the two horses. But Plato talks to us, right, about the importance of body for mind. Uh, in terms of a screen sharing, it's still screen sharing, is it not? Thumbs up. I can. Uh, yeah, if, if you're talking about the slides, yes, Adam. If you're on a mobile phone, then you might have to. Have it. Okay. Okay. Cheers. Good. Cheers. Thank you for that. Um, so again, so what P Plato is telling us, right, is mind and body, train them both. Athletics is the place to bring them into harmony. Although I talked a little bit about the distinctions kind of between him and Aristotle. Aristotle also very much into this idea. Oh, where, where did my Aristotle slide go? Ah, there it is. And I love Aristotle's understanding because he really is focusing on this notion of balance and he's really aiming us towards the things that matter the most to us. Um, and he talks about this notion of balance through athletic bodies. Athletic excellence of the body consists in size, strength, and swiftness, swiftness implying strength. He who can fling his, forward his legs in a certain way and move them fast and far is good at running. He who can grip and hold down is good at wrestling. But he who can drive an adversary, uh, he who can drive an adversary from his ground with the right blow is a good boxer. He who can do both the last is a good pancreationist, while he who can do all is an all-round athlete, right? Train the body, train the mind, don't just focus on one or the or the other. And that should also be expressed in the way we practice with our bodies. Don't specialize in one thing or another. Don't just try to become good at sprinting. Try to become good at all the sports. And Aristotle and, and Plato, they actually um, shouted down the athletes of their day because they more closely resembled the professionals that we have today where you only train in one sport so that you can get really good at one sport so that you can become professional and then you can make a living from just being excellent at that one sport, um, which they didn't like. They didn't like that idea because athletics aren't vocational. They're moral and ultimately spiritual in their nature, because what they should be doing is teaching us about who we are and allowing us to acquire virtue 
as opposed to tilting us towards the external world and the goods and the riches and things that come with that element. That's one part of the philosophy I didn't necessarily talk about too, too much today. But this idea of internal drive is huge. We do things for the reasons why we want to do them that are being driven inside of us. Pancreationist, yes, equals MMA. Uh, there were three ancient combat sports. There was the heavy boxing, there was the wrestling, and then there was the pancreation, which was kind of like the mix of the heavy boxing and the wrestling. And there were only two rules in pancreation, uh, no biting and no eye gouging. Everything else you could do. Yeah, nuts. And, and what's, what's striking, unintended pun, is that boxing was actually the one where most people died because the Greeks used to affix kind of like leather straps, kind of almost like brass knuckles. Um, so you can imagine the heavy blows of bare knuckle boxing with a little bit of extra oomph. Uh, and lots of, lots of people did not, did not come back from that. Um, but to sort of close off here, when I'm thinking about a philosophy for movement, a philosophy of sport, how to apply these lessons into a good life, what I'm telling everybody here is, Sport philosophy should be a philosophy of struggle and triumph. The reason athletics exists is to cultivate virtues through discomfort. It's a willing submission to sacrifice. It's a willing submission to discomfort, right? None of us have to do any of these things. There's no objective good in running as fast as you can run or lifting as hard as you can, right? They don't matter in the world like, being a general or being a doctor or, you know, like doing something that actually impacts people's lives. So then why are we doing these things? What, what, what utility is there? Well, again, it's to bring about within ourselves, our true and best potential, right? But we can only do it if we willingly submit to discomfort and to struggle, right? And that's the ultimate utility. I'm sounding, I know. Well, it, I'm not a utilitarian, like, because I'm not telling you to go do it just for, I'm not telling you to do it for the sake of utility. I told you I was going to heckle. That's a great heckle. I appreciate it. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. Um, we have to have it. There, there has to be, if, if we're trying to apply something, then there has to be a con a good, there has to be a consequence right in the world of our, of our actions. And so what is the consequence of running really fast? It's moving from In point A to point B. today's talk, I proved that Jordan Goldstein is a utilitarian consequentialist. Okay, we're going to have to fight about that, but that's okay. It's a good one. You're really good at... Whoever said he wasn't good at heckling? No, no, he's good. He's really good. <laughs> Pardon me. Pardon me. Yes. In a sense, there's a utility to doing this. But the utility is different for each person because the characteristics and traits that we can, we can cultivate within ourselves are subjective to the individual's journey, okay? So my utility is different than your utility, right? I go and run in the trails for a bunch of different reasons. And that might be totally different from the reason that you go onto the beach and play footy with your friends. You know what I mean? Um, but the utility of that is to engender the best parts of our spirits and our characters um, through this notion of struggle and competition and toil. And that's the reason why the athletes were celebrated and praised in the ancient world. That's where a philosophy of their morality came from. And that's kind of the philosophy that I'm preaching today is go out, experience the world through your body, make it hurt, do it in a way that you love 
that speaks to your talent and your passion. So go play a sport or do an exercise that you just love to do. And by doing that, you're going to bring about the best parts of yourself so that when adversity, struggle, roadblocks hit outside of the world of sports, you're able to sail over them and transcend limitations of who you thought you could believe. Nice. Yep. We'll come first full circle on that. I could talk for another 20 hours on this stuff, but I know we're not supposed to do that. And I probably already talked too long. So I appreciate everybody listening. I appreciate the time that I could lay out some of these ideas uh, in a particular way. So thank you everybody for sticking with it. Thank you for the heckles. Thank you for the questions. Thank you for your um, contributions, everybody. And I'll just open it up to questions, discussion, um, criticisms. Um, and you guys can see those are the ways you can get a, a hold of me. I'll throw this, I'll leave this up on the screen for just a moment uh, in terms of uh, come follow me on Twitter, shoot me a DM anytime they're always open. If you got something longer that you want to say, a uh, question, um, there's my email. I'll leave that up. Uh, but otherwise, I'll turn it back over to Mahmoud and, he, and let, the, uh, let the interrogation begin. Uh, yeah, no, thank you very much for this. I'll, I'll leave it up to you, actually. If anyone writes okay. a question in the chat, just uh, read it out loud for those who are following the uh, recording. Other than that, I'll, I'll leave it up to you. You, you handle it. Oh, perfect. Okay, great. So yeah, so just if anybody has a question, feel free to unmute and ask or or drop it in the chat. Um, is philosophy a sport? Uh, Asked Adam. Well, I guess that depends on what your definition of sport is. And for me, something that's combative and competitive is not necessarily sport, even if it has sort of like a sporting ethos. Um, and to me, Sport is physical. It requires physicality and not just any kind of physicality. Sports are games, first and foremost. All sports are a game. And um, this will be a question, I think, that we'll talk about esports here. So I'll, I'll try and answer both at one. So what makes a game a game is artificial limitations that make completing the object of the game more difficult. Right. So like in Monopoly, it would be a lot easier if you could just take however much money you wanted from the bank at the beginning of your turn. That would really make it easy to buy lots of properties, right, to go around the board and be able to pay off all your rents. But that's just not how the game Monopoly works because we want it to be a little bit harder. Yeah, but the game would fall apart. The, the rules make the game. The rules make the game. So all, all that a sport is, is a game where the limitation is physical. You have to perform a physical act in order to go over and above the limitation. This is why I would say something like darts is a sport, but something like chess is not. Darts is not very physical, but in order to hit the board, you've got to, you, there's a motion. There's a physical motion you've got to do. Chess, you can play by mail. You don't have to, well, yeah, that was the question. The question was, is philosophy a sport? You know, come on. So, so, so chess isn't a sport because the thing that there's the limit in the game is not a physical component. It's not a physical quality, right? So is philosophy a sport? Nah, it's not. I mean, it's kind of like, is chess a sport? No, but there is a sport called chess boxing. 
where you play chess and then you punch each other in the face for 90 seconds. And then you go back and play chess and then you get up and you punch each other in the face for 90, 90 more seconds. So could you turn philosophy into a sport? Maybe if you, if there was some way that we could put a physical, a physical limit on it, then yeah, we could maybe do it because ultimately philosophy and sport are both about creating is needing bread a sport. You could make it one. If you turn it into a game, then yes, you could, you could turn They're it into a They're not trolling you here. This is a, <laughs> no, I know. a serious question. Yeah. Those are, that is a serious question. I get it because I'm talking about something that's physical and eating bread is something that's obviously physical. But right? Exactly. Like it's, it's quite physical. Like, yeah. Yeah. Something I'd like to think about often is uh, drumming. Like, cause I, I'm a musician too. So is like drumming a sport. Drumming is incredibly physical. Could you turn drumming into a sport? Absolutely. Just some competition. You, all you have to do is gamify something, turn it into a contest and then make sure that whatever you need to win the contest is the physical act. They've turned lumberjacks and like lumberjack skills into sports, like chopping down wood and trees. You ever seen those international lumberjack competitions? Anybody seen those? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Vicky. Yeah. Sorry if I pronounced that incorrectly. Right. So I you'd be know, like, I just said, yes, I did. See. Oh, you have, have. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You see right? them and then there are like levels and yeah. Yeah. So anything physical, yeah. You so so Telmo, kneading bread on your own right now, not a sport, but if somebody gamified it, it but, could oh, be okay, 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 okay. And and this is this is actually an interesting uh nuance there. So you're saying that so it's the difference between movement as such and sports is the fact that we make them into turn them into a competition. In some elements, sport requires sports a game, which is one of the reasons why I probably didn't use the correct terms and why I, I started out, like when I say sport, what I'm more talking about is like physical exertion or like intensity um, when it comes to motion, moving our body. And it's more so related to the idea of struggle um, and, 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 and using our bodies in a way to struggles for the sake of feeling the struggle in our body. So needing bread certainly hurts our forearms, but we do it so we can have a beautiful loaf that we can eat afterwards, right? If all you're doing is kneading the bread to work on your forearm muscles as an exercise. So again, it's like, it, there's no like hard and fast way, I think, to, to think about these things. When you're trying to get into the, the metaphysics of like, what is a sport and what isn't, then I'll tend to come down kind of hard on definitions. But if we're trying to extract the value from moving our bodies, well, then I'd love to expand the definition. So it's really kind of which, which, which uh, sandbox we want to play in um, when we're talking about um, philosophy. So in that sense, um, is eSport a sport? Um, this is a pretty good one. I was somebody who used to say no, but now I'm probably someone who would put eSport in the category of like, very low grade physical sports, because I do believe there are physical, I do believe there are physical qualities that allow some people to be better in esports than others. If you're talking about click rates, if you're talking about hand-eye coordination, um, there are elements, there are elements of physicality, there are elements of skill that are related through the body that will determine who's going to win or lose the game. And so it I, I, I now tend to put eSport into sport, but I would, I would suggest it's not emblematic of the ways in which we want to best 
move our bodies to live the good life <laughs> if that makes if that in makes terms sense. of chest in terms of chest as well though jordan because yeah this is just me thinking when you were talking if we're about embodiment and body first well chess is obviously a, a very brain-based game isn't it you need you need a high level of intellect to play it well yep and the brain is in the body and it's yep. also quite endurance based in a way you can have really really long games yep so just yeah, because I, it's brain and you're not physically, you're not running, punching, jumping or anything, but you're still using your brain, which is your body. So mm-hmm. where does the line come between? I know you mentioned exertion before. Yeah, I guess that's the difference between like acting and thinking, right? What's the act in chess? Like you actually don't even need to move your body at all in terms of to play the game of chess. Um, people used to play chess by mail, Right. Um, that's, that's, that's the distinction I, I'm getting at. And I agree with you about the blurriness of this stuff. And, and that's why I didn't do my presentation on the definition, the objective definition of sport. That's just kind of like where the questions went. Um, so I'm kind of feeling them feeling that way, but I, I'm much more, I'm much more interested in the expanded understanding because I, I, I don't think that the distinctions make too, too much of a difference, honestly, because, you can experience it. You can experience the benefits of embodiment through something like chess or through something like kneading bread. And you could be totally superficial and not get anything out of sprinting, you know? So it's, I, I, I tend to, to come down much more on the subjective element per- personally. Um, I'm just trying to, trying to be, be a little bit on that objective side here um, as, as, as well. Um, and when it comes to the definition of sport, that's if you force me into one corner, that's kind of like the definition I like to, I like to play with, although it's certainly up for debate and sport philosophers have a robust definition. Um, and we didn't even get to things like play or uh, because sport exists in a triangle with, with, with uh, play and games. And so in order to define sport, you have to define play and you also have to define games because they're inseparable, the three of them. So I don't know if that's really a question, but or, or an answer to anybody's question. But um, philosophy doesn't necessarily need to drive us to answers; just more questions. Uh, yeah, Anthony just shared a uh, link. I obviously did not uh, read mm-hmm. uh, the article, but then about the surprising physical demands of chess. Yes. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh, short, short end is like Federer burns five hundred sixty calories in an hour of tennis. And a grandmaster will burn the same in two hours of chess. Oh, easily. Yeah, says. it's yeah. I mean, it's an know, inc- just a link on the internet. And, and also, sure, just a weigh in on this uh, has nothing to do with that. But then I I uh, I remember this from Death Note. I don't know if you've seen this anime. Uh, it's so uh, L from from Death Note is always saying, you know, like yeah, thinking also kind of demands a lot of energy and this is why he eats a lot of sugar and and this kind of yeah yes yes yes. so i could presume that chess is does the same in this case uh if you're in a grand if you're a grandmaster and you're at the highest levels of of chess it is an absolute physical ordeal that you must go through that still doesn't mean that the game of chess hinges upon a physical act in order for you to to win it, you know, it's like me studying for a test is a very, like if I cram overnight 
it's very physical and it's very demanding of me, but no one will suggest that it's like a physical thing that I'm doing when I go and sit in a chair and I, I do my test for two hours. Right. Um, so that's kind of like the distinction that I'm trying to get at. I, I completely empathize with that idea of like the physic, the physicality of, of these things for sure. It's just like, is the thing that makes chess go physical, is there physicality? Yeah. Either way. Um, on cultivating virtue through discomfort, how do you think about whether there's too little or too much discomfort? That is an excellent question. That's related to each individual where they are in their journey. Somebody like me, I could take on a tremendous amount of discomfort because I've been training myself to do it for a long time. Uh, so what looks like discomfort for me might look like insanity to you. And what looks like discomfort to you might just look like a normal routine day for me or vice, vice versa, right? It's not like I'm the hardest person around, like... Uh, I'm soft in a lot of, in a lot of other ways. Right. Um, <laughs> pardon me. So I think prob it's relative to where you're starting, what you're doing and what you're trying to accomplish. Like there are certainly extremely discomforting things that I would suggest everybody should be trying to do, but should we all go and do it to the same level? Yeah, I, I don't think so. One of the things that I, 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 I preach about practically uh, on how to, use the body to sort of strengthen the mind uh, is through cold exposure. And that's why I have my ice beard picture. Um, everybody can benefit from some cold exposure. Um, doesn't mean you have to go into an ice bath or jump into a, like a, a freezing river. You could just put a little cold water on the back of your neck or, or turn your shower to cold for 10 seconds at the end. Right. Like, like the suffering is relative. Each person's suffering is relative unto themselves. Um, and I would suggest the more willing you are to go through struggle, then the more virtue you'll find on the other side. But that's not, you have to make sure you do get to the other side. So <laughs> that's also a, that's also, a, that's also a, um, that's also a calculation, but this is where the idea of the mundane comes in to play, right? It's like for you, if that 10 second cold shower is like the hardest thing that you're going to do that day, well then amazing. Like that's not trivial. That's not small. That's a huge win, even though it's just 10 seconds and it's just a little cold water. You know what I mean? Like our experiences can become outsized. Right. And so that's the, what, that's what I would say about uh, discomfort. The more you're willing to take on, yes, the more virtue you can acquire, but that looks different to each of each and every one of us. Who would you say is the most philosophical athlete you have ever seen or heard? Ooh, this is a good one. The most philosophical athlete in my experience would probably be Ken Dryden. Um, do, do people know who Ken Dryden is? Is that a name? Uh, any Canadians? Any, any, any people who love hockey? Ken Dryden was a goaltender. Um, he was a goaltender in the 1970s. He was Canada's goaltender in the Summit Series against the Soviet Union in 1972. He's the goaltender. I know. I'm sorry. I'm a Canadian. What do you want? I'm, what does that even mean? Summit series was like the, was like the cold war on ice, uh, capitalist West versus communist East. No, no, no. The, what, 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 what the guy did, <laughs> which guy, uh, the, your guy, oh, Ken Goal. Dryden. Yeah. What, oh, oh, is, oh, what's a goalie. Oh, I'm sorry. In oh, hockey, no, no, no. wait a... a second. Hockey. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Fine. fine. I'm talking okay, about ice yeah. hockey. You have to grab. Okay, ice hockey, and then. Sorry, I know. <laughs> In Canada, if you say we, hockey, we, we only know 
football. Well, I I know football. Oh, I know this is this is my litmus test to see who's who's Canadian or not. Okay, so I guess I'm the only one here. Ooh, bad. Okay, so ice hockey goalie. He's an I'm ice Canadian hockey goalie. Too. <laughs> oh, great, Nala! You're 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 you're. you're but I'm Lebanese Canadian, but I, I love hockey. I I oh. got used to hockey. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. So Ken Dryden's a hockey goalie and a hockey goalie has potentially a lot of time to think on the ice. And Ken Dryden is actually, I wish I could find, there's a, po if somebody could Google Ken Dryden pose and like put in the chat, this is like the, uh, the philosopher athlete in, in, in picture form, because he also played for probably the greatest team in, in NHL history, the, the, the Montreal Canadiens dynasty of the late 1970s. So there were times where he literally would be doing nothing on the ice because his team was just popping goals in on the other side. But he was an educated man. He's a lawyer. Um, and he wrote probably the greatest sports book ever called The Game. And it's an intricate, detailed analysis of the ebbs and flows of the game of hockey and the experience of playing with it that then maps out onto greater life. Uh, so I'm going to put that in the chat. Uh, the Game by... Ken. This is precisely my first thought, Delmo. <laughs> Looks like Jason from the horror movies. Let me see if this is the right photo, first of all. Because he's going to have the definitely the horror mask. Yes. He was famous for standing like this, like with his stick up and basically like watching the game because it was he was bored because his team was just winning. Like the other team never really came into his zone. He never had to do anything, but he was excellent. He's a Hall of Fame goaltender, right? So, so he was able to sort of think, but then act. But the game, if people are really interested, they like kind of like reading a good, a good book about sports. The game by Ken Dryden is really good. So that, that's my answer to your question, John. Um, great question. <coughs> Thank you. Enjoy that. I'm going to check out that book. Yeah, I think you'll really enjoy. It. I think you'll really enjoy it. He's a very smart guy. Very smart. Not so much in politics, but but certainly has a lot of good things to say. By the way, before anyone has any other question, uh, uh, starting December six, if I'm not mistaken, Jordan, Guru, and Aerobic, Mark Baker, and Urtats uh, are going to be also giving leading a course. Uh, titled uh, Lessons from Sports to Live a Better Life. So I'm going to be sending this email out uh, to those who signed up as well, but uh, this is a 30% also discount for those who signed up, if you're interested. Uh, Jordan can tell you more about the course uh, shortly. But yeah, if you have any other questions, feel free. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I think that might be it. Any other uh, Telmo? Yeah. See, you are unmuted. Oh, no, that was a mistake. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Any other questions uh, or uh, anything related to what uh, Jordan talked about today? No, I wonder if it's 
if there's a difference between sports that are competitive with others or sports that are competitive against yourself, if you, if you think there's, that's going to result in different kind of outcome or different experience. Yes. I, I, I actually believe each sport tends towards different virtues. Like you play a specific sport uh, and, and certain, like if you play hockey, you're going to get something different than if you run track than if you um, do gymnastics. Like I think each sport speaks to different virtues and that's why different people are interested in watching or participating or playing those sports or find joy in moving their bodies um, that way. So I absolutely think even that that comes down to categories, individual sports are definitely different than team sports. Sports where there's an objective score or a measure or a time are different than judge sports where you're kind of performing for a panel. All of these things I think will, will, will tilt you towards different virtues. Um, we could get into a long debate about what those are, but, but the short answer to your question is yes, there's definitely a difference. Um, and that's kind of one of the fun things um, is then you can start to think, well, it's like, well, if I'm, if I love hockey, what does that say about me? What kind of virtues do I respond to? Um, one of the big things in ice hockey, sorry, ice hockey, um, that's a huge virtue for me in my life is loyalty. Um, loyalty is a huge, huge component of ice hockey, more so than in other team sports. Like that's why there's a lot of fighting in hockey. Okay. <laughs> it's one, it's dangerous, but, but, but the loyalty to your teammates is, is incredibly strong and people willingly sacrifice themselves by fighting in order to protect the fallen teammate or someone who they felt has got it cheap shotted. And that's an integral part of the game. And to people who don't understand it on the outside, it looks like barbarism. But for the, the people on the inside of the game, they know exactly what's happening. Um, so that's just one kind of example. But you could think about all the different sports, right? Like what is, what are the, what's the virtues that come out of watching football, the world's most popular sport, right? Um, I, I, I think a lot of it is cohesion. Being in a community, like all pulling together. You don't think so? in terms of like playing football, there's so little outcome in football. It's so processed. It's just based on players moving around. Right. And then you get that goal. No, you don't like that one. Okay. So I'm wrong. That's fine. Not necessarily <laughs> wrong or right. But then it's like, it's yeah, they're moving around, but then yeah, there's, there's something more to it. But, but that's a whole different story because in, in my case, it's yeah. <laughs> See, no, no, Prab gets me. Prab gets but, me. But this is because like it's it's one of the things that are interesting <laughs> about sports, not in terms of maybe not necessarily in terms of uh, the player's perspective, but from a spectator's perspective, mm. uh, the, the difference between football and other sports is that the offside rule creates a certain tension that allows for some sort of novelty to be created. You know, yes. Like you're you're constantly trying to break the offside rule in order to be able to score. And so far yes. as you're not scoring, of course, from, yeah, but anyway. So, so I agree with you, maybe not in terms of movement or anything of the sort, although I do think there's, there's a lot of movement there depending on your... Uh, what position you play in but from a spectator's aesthetic mm -hmm. perspective there's more to football than any other sports like it, it allows you to enjoy the game despite the fact that there are clear rules and you mm -hmm. know uh, pre-established space interesting 
Interesting. Yeah. I like that idea. Um, and we didn't even talk about spectacle versus consumption. Yeah, of course. Spectacle. This is why I'm saying it's it's like from a spectator, not necessarily yeah. from a player slash sport perspective, cool. kind of. Yeah. Like I'll leave on like one of the things that I think bogs people down in terms of like sport is like, well, if I'm not playing, can I watch? And if I watch, how am I supposed to watch? And can I watch and still gain the values if I'm not participating? And you can. Your tweets are constantly bashing those who are only potatoes. Yeah. Only doing that. Like you should watch. I don't, I don't think it's entertainment. I don't think you watch sports. Okay. There's a difference. I don't think you watch sports for entertainment. I think you watch it for education and inspiration. Okay. So that's the, that's the difference for me. It's like, if you're watching a team or an athlete that you truly love and you're inspired by their performance and then you act, you go out and you do something great because of it. That's a good, that's a good onto the world. Watching sports can then be good. The problem is when you watch sports and you just consume, right? consume 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 watch 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 like that's the problem the problem is the overconsumption and not related to and 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 not related to then applying it like the ancient greeks forty thousand of them used to descend every four years to the foot of mount olympus to watch the ancient olympics right but what didn't they have comfort there were no stands it's hot in the greek summer you got forty thousand people not bathing stinks uncomfortable yet they're all going there and these are like the richest people in the ancient greek world so they're going to this place to be un- particularly uncomfortable as spectators what why are they doing that because they're they want to see the athletes they're inspired by their performance they are motivated by the struggle that they see them going through they share her part of that struggle that's another important thing about consumption if you're sharing the struggle alongside of the athletes then you're kind of engaging in it with them it's the difference between like sitting on the couch and being like this or you everybody knows that really passionate fan like when their team's on like they're pacing around the room and it's the last word that you're ever going to use to describe that person is entertaining like they're not entertaining themselves they're putting themselves through like anguish and anxiety and like intensity Thanks, John. That's exactly right. Uh, <laughs> right. So, um, <laughs> so, so as long as you're engaging in struggle, then watching sport becomes a vehicle for you to then touch the virtues as well. Um, but you have to, you have to be just, you have to be uncomfortable as in that spectator role in, in one, one way or another. So sitting in your lazy boy couch with your 90 inch screen and your surround sound and you never move and you're just getting drunk well yeah that's bad that's a bad way to watch sports but doesn't mean that there isn't a good way to watch sports because i do i truly believe that there are lots of good ways that we can we can consume uh sports but you got to be careful about it uh yeah uh, maybe one last question nahla sent it in, in private but i think it's it's meant to you so uh, sorry if, i don't know yeah. why it went private <laughs> yeah uh well maybe you can ask the question yourself yeah yeah i was i asked like why do you think athletes nowadays achieve this moral virtue that you associated with comp- with being an athlete and and if not why how come they didn't Great question. I say some do, most don't. 
Uh, most don't because we, we live in the world where sport is seen as entertainment and spectacle. And so the incentives for people to come in are to be the performers and are to extract external value from it. So most professional athletes, I would suggest are not the best role models, but there are excellent examples. Uh, somebody mentioned like Roger Federer, an amazing example of somebody who sports fans, non-sports fans look at and say, this guy is the epitome of like class, dignity, grace, good sportsmanship, right? He embodies all of the virtues we would hope a grand champion of tennis would, would, would embody. So there are examples and you have to look at the people who, it's not the fact that Roger Federer got rich from playing tennis. It's that he, every time he went out on the course, he played tennis the way we hoped the best champion would, would play tennis. That's kind of the best. That's kind of the way I could think about it. So there are certainly individual athletes who I think do measure up. I would just suggest we don't understand athletics through this lens and we use them incorrectly in society as entertainment and a spectacle and a show, um, which distorts and moves us away from their true purpose and true value, which is this virtue individual character um, generating activity. So hopefully that answers your question, but it is an excellent question. Thank you so much for that, Noah. Yeah, but could it be also that when you are so much into sports, you are kind of uh, a bit putting your intellect aside sometimes because you're exercising, obsessed about, uh, you know, winning. And so, I don't know, your intellect is kind of ignored. <laughs> In, not for not for most not for many athletes but for yeah i mean in general so yeah, and would, put differently oh, she's so talking about the gym bros you know yes you know yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i got a lot no, of negative no not necessarily not necessarily it could be also athletes i mean <laughs> yeah i would suggest that again they are getting it wrong because they're not expressing that idea of mind body balance Right. So uh, if my tweets, I also go after the gym bros, like who are, who are idiots, like <laughs> the ones who, the ones who don't read, right. Um, the ones, the ones who don't debate, the ones who don't engage in dialogue, right. They're not, you have to cultivate mind and body together. That's the ultimate sign of an athlete or this, the ultimate representation of the, of the, of, of the, of the athlete. So I would agree with you. And I think the reason why we see so much of that is because of this distorted understanding of what sports are as an activity and what we should be utilizing and using them for. Um, and so I agree with you. And th that's just as much of a problem as brainy people not working on their bodies. That's, yeah, again, sorry to, to, to jump in, but this is, this is actually quite interesting because a couple of courses ago, we were discussing just that. That this separation between, you know, these people are athletes and these people are mm. scientists or these people are, you know, the, the intellectuals. It's like, how, <laughs> the, like, how the hell did we get from ancient Greece where you had to be physically fit, blah, 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 in order to be, you know, the mind of the body and to, yep. oh, no, but this guy is a scientist and or philosopher or whatever. And you look at them and they're like, you know. Yeah, and and then the athletes who you look at them and just like uh, Nahla said, yeah, they they're just obsessed. It's like both of them are obsessed with the with two yes. extremes. Yes. 
Yeah. Yes. It's exactly that's 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 exactly right. So if we have a proper understanding and a proper way to apply that understanding, well, then we can rectify the problem by being strong in body and mind at the same time. And I truly believe that when you engage with this notion that sports is a purposeful struggle, then that naturally comes at it. Um, dad bods are better than the six pack. You know what? I think a dad bod doesn't I, need I to blame have- capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> That's a that's that that's a big buggy man for sure. <laughs> but uh, but this is the thing. This is this is the question that uh, it, it, like the, the capitalism and what Anthony said is it is it money? Well, I mean, in the case of athletes, at least there's an inertia. Business. It's like a yes. well, the ancient the ancient Greeks had the same problem. Were they capitalists? Was capitalism the thing that that turned the athletes from amateurs into specialists who they called prostitutes? Right? Like, was capitalism the thing that drove the Roman Empire to put on gladiator contests and chariot races for the spectacle of the masses in order to keep them politically in the dark? I, I, I think within any human activity, there's the potential for good and bad. And sports... The thing that's that 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 is inherent in sport, and maybe this relates to the idea of capitalism, although I don't like to call I mean I think it's the notion of competition breeds intensity and seriousness. Like whenever you're competing in something, the external drive of just wanting to win in whatever that competition is overtakes the internal drive of why you're doing the competition in the first place. And that's just human nature. Um, and that's what ends up happening the more importance you place on competition, the more people are willing to just be involved in it for the sake of competition. And eventually that leads to the external riches that come with specialization. But I don't think it's necessarily like a capitalism issue. I think it's a, a more of a human spirit condition when it comes to competition. Humans love to win. And eventually if you make winning important enough, they'll do whatever it takes to win. And so there's a paradox inherent within sport, but I mean, life is a paradox. And if you can't accept paradoxes, then you're going to have a really hard time accepting life and enjoying it. <laughs> that's my, that's my perspective, at least like in, that's, that, that's, that's a grand, and, uh, that's a grand philosophy that I have. And, and this is, this a uh, last question I promise, but this is uh, related to your tweets usually, you know, about Aristotle and mediocrity and excellence, yep. stuff like that. And now talking about competition and winning. So this kind of paradox, if you want to call it paradox, but because I, I understand like Aristotle's excellence differently from the tweets, from your tweets, at least, you know, that uh, mediocrity is, is not good or whatever. Wouldn't it be much better to just not... Um, focus so much on competition on winning on stuff like that like mediocrity doesn't have to be i came in first you came in second in the absolute sense like okay this is the most important thing but putting in all you have in order to achieve the maximum you can get i don't know yes i don't know if i'm making sense even but, but yeah no what you just said is the idea of excellence it's excellence unto each individual not relative excellence overall to everybody else's standard um, like sports allow us to have an objective measure of excellence in terms of like, oh, this person ran the fastest or that person jumped the farthest. 
But what that serves to do is it serves to prove to us that limits are limits and that through hard work and dedication, you can actually go above and beyond the limit that you think you can achieve. It's like the four minute mile, right? It's like nobody thought the four minute mile was humanly possible to achieve. And Roger Bannister did it. So Roger Bannister did it. And then like within a week, two other people did it. So it's like, we need the objective measure so that we can show that it's, these are just sort of like false limits we place upon ourselves. And now you literally have hundreds of like high school people, high school boys who run a four minute mile every year. It's crazy. Thank you, Vikyat. Appreciate it. Um, so we, that's, that's part of the problem is that when we talk about excellence and winning, we focus on the outcome instead of the process that's involved in it. So that's what I would, that would be my retort. It would be like, let's just turn it back to the, the idea of the process and the journey and forget about the individual outcomes. It's just kind of like our moral characters doesn't mean just because I'm, I, I, you describe me as a loyal person doesn't mean I'm going to a hundred percent be loyal in every single element that I'm going to fail. Like I'm going to mess up. I'm going to make a mistake. Like perfection is not unto this world. What we can hope for best and most is consistency. That's why we focus on process or journey as opposed to outcome and result because that tilts us away from the true value. So I would suggest that whenever people talk about excellence and winning and relate it solely to the idea of the outcome, they're also misunderstanding the point. And so that's, that's again, what then tilts us towards the external and the riches. Well, if winning is the thing that's most important, well then by the virtue of the fact that I've won, means that it's X, Y, and Z. And that kind of, that kind of tilts you back towards the consequentialist idea of things now, doesn't it? And I already said, that's not a great way to go about it um, when it comes to a subjective understanding of motion and movement. Um, so there's my answer to that one. <laughs> yeah, this is actually the paradox, right? Yes, there, kind of more. It less, is. But yeah. Uh, yeah, on my end, uh, thank you very much, uh, Jordan, for doing this. I'm really looking forward to next month's uh, course. And yep. yeah, if uh, there's any final thoughts, if not. Thank you, Anthony. Thank, thank you, you very Rob. much, everyone, for joining, by the way. Thank yeah. you, John. Cheers. Thank you, Ramsey. Thanks, thank uh, you, everybody. Thank Thanks. you. You're welcome. And that was great. Thank you so much for hosting me. And um, yeah, awesome. Great time. academic -y, not academics. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all thank you. for joining. And Thanks, Ramsey. Uh, yeah. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, bro. All right. I'm going to go run in the forest. Let's Enjoy, go. man. Take a picture I, and share on Twitter. I will. It's a beautiful. It was like a horrible, rainy, gloomy day. And it's like incredibly sunny out now. So yes, it's like very much motivated. Oh yeah. Enjoy your run, man. Thank, thank you thank, all for thank joining. You, thank you, Ciao. sir. Thank you, everybody. Have a great uh, day, everyone. That was great. A lot of fun. Cheers. All right.